DiscerningHearts.com presents The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. Joseph Pierce is the director of the Center for Faith and Culture and writer-in-residence at Aquinas College in Nashville, Tennessee. He's a renowned biographer whose works include his own autobiography as well as books on the lives of Father Ho Lang, William Shakespeare, J.R.R. Tolkien, L.R. Belloc, G.K. Chesterton, and numerous others. He's the recipient of an honorary doctorate of higher education from Thomas More College for the Liberal Arts and has also received the Pollock Award for Christian Biography. He is the co-editor of the St. Austin Review and has hosted two series on Shakespeare for EWTN as well as hosting several EWTN productions on J.R.R. Tolkien. The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Wuthering Heights is one of the classic novels of 19th century romanticism. As a major work of modern literature, it retains its controversial status. What was Emily Bronte's intention? Were her intentions iconoclastic? Were they feminist? Were they Christian or post-Christian? Who are the heroes and the villains in this dark masterpiece? Are there any heroes? Are there any villains? We now begin our discussion on Emily Bronte and Wuthering Heights. Welcome, Joseph. It's good to be back. Wuthering Heights and its author, Emily Bronte, has been lifted up as the great love story of maybe even all time in some quarters. Should we stand back from that? Well, absolutely, because uh, what was Emily Bronte herself trying to do with that novel is a question which seems to have eluded most uh, modern and postmodern critics. And again, with the Ignatius Critical Edition, we've addressed that fact with some excellent introduction and there's some excellent critical essays. But I think the first thing we need to do is to, is to understand something about the author herself. They've tried to turn her into all sorts of horrible things, and you name it, a homosexual, an anti-Christian, an atheist. Whereas in actual fact, all the evidence shows, and there's no evidence to any of this other stuff at all, is that she was an Anglican clergyman's daughter who never married, who lived a very sheltered life, who was very widely read, but remained true to her Christian faith throughout her life until her death. This is evident in her poetry and is indeed very, very evident in uh, Wuthering Heights itself. So we're, we're dealing with a profoundly Christian early Victorian woman who's looking at the issues of, should we say, sexual attraction and coming at those issues from a profoundly orthodox, tradition-oriented, dare one say conservative, viewpoint. So in many respects, the novel is the very antithesis of the way that it's often read by people in the postmodern academy, which is a perfect example of why the Ignatius Critical Edition was needed. Just to reiterate, I mean, mm-hmm. it was the fact that I was teaching Wuthering Heights in a class on romanticism and was horrified by the critical editions that are out there from the secular academy that induced me to suggest to Ignatius Press that we launch this uh, series. So, you know, I feel very strongly that great injustice has been done to both Emily Bronte and Wuthering Heights by the postmodern academy, which this Ignatius critical edition uh, seeks to address. You mentioned the term romanticism. In our contemporary culture, we connect it with some type of conjugal love. But that is not what true romanticism in literature, music, or anything else really is denoting. Right. The trouble is we need to look at 
the two different things that the label romantic has been attached to because they're not only different but they are let's say largely antithetical on one level the sort of the, the common use of the word romantic outside of uh, a strictly lit- literary or artistic world is the feelings of true love that spouses would have for each other during courtship and then marriage true love of course denoting the the, the, the emptying of oneself for the other the giving of oneself to the other something which is all about self-sacrifice and not self-gratification. Mm-hmm. But the other use of the word romantic or romanticism relates to a movement in, in art, and it gets complicated because German romanticism is different from English romanticism, it's different from French romanticism mm-hmm. and Spanish romanticism. But specifically in the English context, and of course Emily Bronte uh, emerges from that context, early romanticism, romanticism of Wordsworth and Coleridge, was about feeling, particularly about feeling towards nature, but Coleridge and Wordsworth moved towards Orthodox Christianity and, and their, their romanticism, for the most part, is pretty healthy. But the second generation of romantics, Byron, Shelley and Keats, are much more dark and self-indulgent. And for them, feeling is not just about feeling the pleasures of nature, it's about feeling one's own emotional recesses and, should we say, orienting one's life towards the gratification of those feelings. So that idea of romanticism is something which Emily Bronte is addressing in Wuthering Heights, but from a profoundly critical, negative perspective, showing where that sort of Byronic, self-indulgent, self-gratifying lust, because that's the correct word for it, leads. Let's talk about the author, Emily Bronte, first. Let's talk about the context of her time and in the family that she grew up in. Extraordinary family. Novels, movies have been done just on the Brontes themselves. Yes, I mean, they lived a very secluded life in a, in a pretty secluded part of England, in Haworth, in the western part of Yorkshire, on the edge of the Yorkshire Moors. There's actually a wonderful walk that, that everybody should do if they're in the area. You can actually walk from the parsonage where they lived, cross the open moors to a ruined farmhouse, which was uh, supposed to have been the, the inspiration for Wuthering Heights farmhouse in the novel. All that's left now is sort of a ruined farmhouse and a solitary tree mm. in the midst, of, and you look in all directions, there's not another dwelling. So you can really get the feel and how far you have to walk in order to get there from civilization. So she lived in this sort of bleak landscape in a small town in Yorkshire, the daughter of an Anglican parson, and never married, does not seem to have had any really significant relationship, romantic relationship, but clearly understood the human psyche very well. Largely, I'm sure, because of the theology she had. She remained profoundly Christian. This is clear in her poetry as well as in Wuthering Heights. But also, through the reading of literature, she was obviously very widely read, and including very widely read in the literature of the Romantics, Shelley and Byron. And it's, that, it's a reaction against that Byronic aura that is one of the main inspirations for Wuthering Heights. And you know, you can almost see something of the brooding... Byronic figure in the character of Heathcliff, brutalized, but nonetheless that same sort of uh, dark Byronic self-indulgence. It is a book that, again, has been lifted up as this great romance, this great love story, and yet I know it just in my own personal reading of it, it's 
as you've said, so dark and it's depressing. It's actually, if this is romance, who needs it? <laughs> right, exactly. Well, it just shows that the one form of romance leads to the destruction of the other. You know, mm -hmm. that, that if you're going to be that selfish, that egotistic, that obsessed with yourself, you're never ever going to build up a genuine romantic relationship that leads to true love and marriage and family and children. And that's clearly what Emily Bronte is showing there is that this relationship between Kathy and Heathcliff is destructive, destructive of each of them as individuals, destructive of the other, and destructive of, of, of the wider society around them. So you have child abuse going on. Uh, the children are brutalized by, by this whole experience. There's nothing good to come out of it. And if you really want the sense of what Emily Bronte is getting at, the weight doesn't lift until Heathcliff and Kathy are both dead. Mm -hmm. And it's almost as if the sun comes up, the love comes out, Christianity has been resurrected, and this sort of uh, hellish interlude passes away. The character of Nellie Dean, essential in this story. She should be right there with Heathcliff and Kathy. Yeah, Nellie Dean's the character that provides the moral meaning uh, of the whole novel. It's, it's through the voice of Nellie Dean that Emily Bronte quite clearly is speaking herself. It's the voice of sanity, the voice of sanctity, sanctity and sanity together in, in Nellie Dean. And if people just listen to her, and this is the wonderful discussion between Kathy and Nellie Dean early in the novel, it's almost like a catechism, you know, mm -hmm. when she, Nellie Dean's trying to get, what do you mean by love? You know, what do you mean by marriage? And it's quite clearly that Nellie is treating with scorn Kathy's complete misjudgment and misunderstanding of what true love is. It is such an important work for today's world. For many a girl out there, this has been lifted up as the great attainment of a tremendous love. I hate to say it, we have vampire stories now about mm -hmm. the girl going after the one she shouldn't be a part mm -hmm. of in the great love. And that's the tragedy in this, but also the lesson. Well, yes, because uh, the, the, the thing is, of course, the modern world is not comfortable with self-sacrifice. It doesn't want self-sacrifice. It does want self-gratification. And it's myopic. because It doesn't see the consequences of that self-gratification, which is not only not satisfying uh, in a longer sense, but it's not satisfying even the shorter sense because the more uh, self-obsessive the action, the more instant the consequence, the negative consequence of that action. So it's a false sense of happiness. It's presenting an illusion to the modern world. And because the modern world will not cannot is averse to teaching sanctity and morality in any sense they end up with this rather at best tawdry and at worst absolutely sordid alternative to true love that's being offered you mentioned the vampires but you know, there is uh, of course there's a tendency to concupiscence in us and we can all be if we allow our moral sensibility to be sufficiently corrupted we can all be attracted to that dark other who's going to be destructive to ourselves and to themselves and to everybody around us. So for women, I'm not a woman, mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't obviously fully understand the female psyche, but clearly there's an, there's an aspect of the female psyche when, which we say that holiness has been exorcised, that finds the, the Heathcliff, the Byronic, the Dracula, the dark, brutal force attractive. But that's clearly something which is dangerous and particularly dangerous for young people and for parents to be teaching young people.
It is. For those who may not be familiar with the story, Kathy and Heathcliff grow up on the moors. And when you're reading Bronte, the fact that she grew up there, she's able to describe the landscape. It's such a beautiful book to get into just for that aspect. Oh, it is. And she really does um, encapsulate the moors. And the moors are really beautiful and bleak in the same sense of the word and brutal Mm -hmm. in a sort of beautiful sense of the word. So Mm -hmm. again, you know, it all ties in. But the key thing is about it is that what Emily Bronte is showing in Wuthering Heights is that the destruction of people's lives through cruelty. And it begins, of course, with Heathcliff is treated very cruelly as he's growing up. He's brutalized. And so you have this brutal person who's, instead of being the person he's meant to become, becomes Mm -hmm. a hideous parody of that and learns to look after himself by being more nasty to others. It's the perverse inversion of the Christian morality to love our neighbor and to love our enemy. It's basically you hate everybody to try to get one up on them. And what are the consequences of that? Well, this selfishness leads to self-destruction and destruction of everything else. It's, it's a profoundly moral tale, very dark, but there's nothing wrong with a novel that treats of evil as being dark. In fact, the most poisonous literature are those that treat of evil as being good. Mm. And Mothering Heights does not do that. No, it doesn't. It actually shows the consequences of the behavior that this can be the destruction even unto death and even beyond. This has lasting ramifications, the choices that are made. Yeah, even when Kathy is dying, it's all about selfishness, you know, Heathcliff, you, you can't die because I can't live without you. And Kathy's sort of saying, well, you're not going to escape from me. I'm going to curse you. I mm-hmm. mean, it, it's, it's love, in inverted commas, because it's not true love, turned to hatred. In other words, you have a bogus, false picture of love that very quickly turns to hatred. Again, Nellie Dean is there throughout the whole book trying to point to what are you doing? What are you thinking? And trying to point, and ultimately succeeding in the end of showing just what type of bright light virtue can be. Yeah, and she's exactly that. She's the beacon of true Christianity. I mean, he said against her is Joseph, who's the the puritanical Pharisee, you know, Mm -hmm. the judgmental Christian, who I'm holier than thou, you're all evil, you're not justified. He's a typical Calvinist, in fact. He's a bad type of Calvinist. I'm sure there are good Calvinists. Mm-hmm. But, you know, but he's where Calvinistic determinism, predestination can lead, is that I'm one of the elect, you're all going to hell. Whereas, in fact, he's judgmental, pharisaical, doesn't seem to have any more love in him than Heathcliff and Cathy have in them. Where Nellie Dean is the true Christian who knows how to love, to love her neighbor and to love her enemy. And you know, there can be few environments where a Christian love is tested in such a difficult way as Nellie Dean is tested by the way the, the other characters act in Wuthering Heights. And the fact that she comes through with flying colors is a true marker for sanctity and her wisdom. And I say that sanctity and sanity are one in Wuthering Heights. Now for an excerpt from Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. Today, Edgar Linton has asked me to marry him, and I've given him an answer. Now, before I tell you whether it was a consent or denial, you tell me which it ought to have been. Really, Miss Catherine, how can I know? I replied. To be sure, considering the exhibition you performed in his presence this afternoon, I might say it would be wise to refuse him. 
since he asked you after that, he must either be hopelessly stupid or a venturesome fool. "'If you talk so, I won't tell you any more,' she returned, peevishly rising to her feet. "'I accepted him, Nelly. Be quick and say whether I was wrong.' "'You accepted him? Then what good is it discussing the matter? You have pledged your word and cannot retract.' "'But say whether I should have done so. Do!' she exclaimed in an irritated tone, chafing her hands together and frowning. "'There are many things to be considered before that question can be answered properly,' I said sententiously. First and foremost, do you love Mr. Edgar?' "'Who can help it? Of course I do,' she answered. Then I put her through the following catechism. For a girl of twenty-two it was not injudicious. "'Why do you love him, Miss Cathy?' "'Nonsense, I do. That's sufficient.' "'By no means. You must say why.' "'Well, because he is handsome and pleasant to be with.' "'Bad,' was my commentary. "'And because he is young and cheerful.' "'Bad still.' "'And because he loves me.' indifferent coming there. And he will be rich, and I shall like to be the greatest woman of the neighbourhood, and I shall be proud of having such a husband. Worst of all. And now say how you love him. As everybody loves, you're silly, Nelly. Not at all. Answer. I love the ground under his feet, and the air over his head, and everything he touches, and every word he says, I love all his looks, and all his actions, and him entirely and altogether. There now. And why? Nay, you are making a jest of it. It is exceedingly ill-natured. It's no jest to me, said the young lady, scowling and turning her face to the fire. I am very far from jesting, Miss Catherine, I replied. You love Mr. Edgar because he is handsome and young and cheerful and rich, and loves you. The last, however, goes for nothing. You would love him without that, probably, and with it you wouldn't unless he possessed the four former attractions. No, to be sure not. I should only pity him, hate him, perhaps, if he were ugly and a clown. But there are several other handsome, rich young men in the world, handsomer, possibly, and richer than he is. What should hinder you from loving them? If there be any, they're out of my way. I've seen none like Edgar. You may see some, and he won't always be handsome and young, and may not always be rich. He is now, and I have only to do with the present. I wish you would speak rationally. Well, that settles it. If you have only to do with the present, marry Mr. Linton. I don't want your permission for that. I shall marry him, and yet you have not told me whether I'm right. Perfectly right, if people be right to marry only for the present. It's, again, a classic example of our culture that through television, through motion picture, they've taken the story and taken out those crucial elements. 
Yeah, I find it very difficult, quite frankly, Chris, to watch most dramatizations of, of great literature because of the butchering of it. I actually find myself getting very annoyed because to me this is an, uh, an injustice. It's not an injustice against an inanimate object. It's not like someone's throwing stones at a rock. This is desecrating a work which is alive, it's living, it's beautiful, uh, something which conveys a living truth uh, that we are meant to learn from, it's meant to edify us and lead us closer to God. And when these works of literature uh, are inverted perversely, you know, I, I think we should be horrified and I think we should be outraged. And so if I know in advance that, that, that a work's been desecrated in this way, I won't watch it. Yeah, I think of a very simple example of what they did with Han Christian Andersen's Little Mermaid. An important story, but Disney took it and slapped on a happy ending. Here is a girl who gives up the gift that she's given, destroys her father, goes through all of these machinations, and the cost Disney place on it that she succeeds and they all live happily ever after. Yeah, and that's the trouble is that one of the worst types of poison is saccharin, where mm -hmm. you actually lay so much artificial sweetness onto evil that it becomes palatable. It is far more poisonous. As I said, you know, show evil to be ugly. You can make your work as dark or as ugly or as sordid as you like if you are if you're depicting evil, because evil is dark, ugly and sordid. But when you start depicting evil and somehow sweetening it so that it sounds palatable and, and enticing, that's the real poison. To encourage someone to go back and read Wuthering Heights, if you have done it in the past, or maybe if you've never read it, would be to, I would think, try to find out which character you are. I realized when I was in high school many, many, many years ago, I felt I identified with Kathy for whatever reason. However, I would now, at this point in my life, hope that I identify more with Nelly. Well, absolutely. And I think there's also, however, let, let's not leave ourselves open to illusion here, there's also an element of maturity here. One of the, the dangerous things about Wuthering Heights, of course, is that during puberty, during adolescence, all sorts of funny things are happening to us, you know, that, as biologists would say hormonally, but whatever the cause, that we are in a bit of a maelstrom. Our passions are a little bit on the wild side, we're not seeing things completely clearly. And so for a teenage girl to associate um, with Kathy, I don't actually find all that surprising. But as I said, the, the, the important thing about life is about growing up. And, you know, we're not meant to stay as permanent adolescents. We're meant to go beyond puberty towards adulthood. It's one of the ironies about, of course, modern life. You know, you, you have pornography offered to you in a hotel and it says mature content. There's nothing mature about pornography. There's nothing adult about pornography. Becoming an adult is to grow in wisdom. So the perfect example would be a rite of passage as regards Wuthering Heights is for a female reader to grow beyond her feelings of affiliation to a teenage Kathy to a feeling of affiliation with the mature, sensible, and Christian Nelly. Is the redemption at all for Kathy and Heathcliff, or are they meant to spend eternity in despair and hell, essentially? Well, I think that Emily Bronte... Where Christianity is dealt with in, in the novel explicitly as opposed to, impl I mean, it's implicitly present in the whole thing, but where, but where the moral comes to the surface, she's always profoundly orthodox. And even though, you know, if you will look, look for characters in history that perhaps deserve eternal punishment, you might think, well, you know, Heathcliff and Cathy are up there somewhere. She does not send them to hell. She's not confined to hell. She deliberately leaves an element of ambiguity and ambivalence at the end mm -hmm. so that we don't know because it's not for us to judge. Never, not for us to judge the dead. 
and you have to hope that there's an element of hope in the sense that you know that Heathcliff was brutalized when he was young that Kathy basically lived a selfish life that was never really adequately reproved she also had no real example from her elders from her peers so you know is that does this ignorance does this lack of good example of good experience in life somehow save us from final damnation well you know perhaps you have to hope so but certainly there's no way that Emily as a good Christian consigns her characters to hell I mean she leaves it open that we don't know but she does deliberately leave it open because she doesn't do what you said Disney do and say Mm -hmm. oh no they're, they're basically happy now they're together on the moors no no they're not happy and they won't be happy until they're purged of the uh, the sinfulness and selfishness which led them to be unhappy in the first place. So at best they're in purgatory. At best they're in purgatory. Those passions have to be purged away, have to be cleansed away to make them fit for heaven. To get back to Emily Bronte and her time, when you read the book in the context that she is not the author, a manic depressive who never had a great love in her life, but it sees her as someone who has maybe read Byron, who has read Shelley, and is appalled by their worldview, and this is her response to it. Right, and again, there's n- nothing at all in Emily Bronte's life to suggest a manic depressive. The only thing that we have is is uh, our reading of the play, projecting onto her what we think she is. And what we actually see is someone who is a pretty accurate reflection of what we imagine she's been brought up to be, which is a believing Christian. So again, you know, coming back to the central point about the Ignatius critical editions and objectivity, is to try to see the works as far as possible through the eyes of the author. So, you know, what would the daughter of an Anglican parson in early Victorian England believe? And what do we see in the novel? Does it reflect what we would expect those beliefs to be? Yes, it does. You know, but if we insist on making uh, Emily Bronte a 21st century American feminist, then we, we will completely misread the work and, of course, do both Emily Bronte and Wuthering Heights a huge injustice. Well, I would highly recommend, so that does not occur, people rushing out and getting a copy of the critical edition by Ignatius Press of Wuthering Heights. Well, again, you know, if you want to understand the work, there's no better forum to do it than these editions, which not only give the full text of the work with new annotations, but critical essays, which enlighten and illumine. And that's the whole point, is that, that we allow people to come at these works and see them through the eyes of the author and to understand them in a much, much deeper way. A final question for someone who, in hearing the discussion, comes away with a thought that, well, it sounds like a depressing book. Why would I want to read it? Well, yeah, it, it, up to a point it's true. But, you know, can we go through life just looking for the feel-good moments? That's one of the big mistakes in life, to look for the feel-good moments. We have to learn. In order to learn, in order to understand evil, again, there's two ways of understanding evil, to do it or to learn about it. Mm-hmm. Now, and to do it is dangerous. You're taking the Heathcliff and Cathy path, not only dangerous, but potentially suicidal and self-destructive and destructive of the lives of others. Or you can understand evil by learning about it in the correct way, which is looking at how profoundly gifted Christians approach these issues. And in the case of Wuthering Heights, we see a profoundly gifted Christian looking at the consequences of a dark, Byronic, self-indulgent love following the brutes and the devil in us. Um, I think Chesterton says of Heathcliff that he succeeds as a demon uh, every bit as far as he fails as a man. Mm. Um, and so you know, we need to understand that. And we also need to understand those sorts of people because they are out there. Well, I'm looking forward to our continued discussions on the great works. Thank you my so pl- much, Joseph Pierce. My, my pleasure. Thank you. So- You've been listening to Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. 
to hear and or to download this conversation along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce.